0: to Lost in Science for the first show of 2021. My name is Claire and um, it is a new year and we are so glad to have you with us. Stu, how have you been? How has your 2021 been?
1: Um, well, pretty good so far. Um, got away for a little while down on the coast of Victoria, went down to Port Ferry, Port Campbell, had a bit of a a holiday down there but thanks to uh old La Nina it was not very nice weather <laughs> so I didn't didn't get to oh, I got to go to the beach but I didn't go for a swim because it was too cold but uh it was it was good to get away for a, for a while. It was,
0: it was good to get away yeah. um and have you been reading about much science while you've been on holiday during January of 2021?
1: Oh look have I what um there's always science stories popping up in in my peripheral vision that I have to file them away and revisit them later (laughs) sometimes. But, um, there's a lot of science has been happening and I'm going to go through a couple of stories. One of the big stories of course is the, is related to, uh, the change of government in the U S um, they're back on track Mm. with a bit of, uh, bit of evidence-based policy which has been somewhat lacking the last few years but uh, more about that later in the show and also some some uh, little funny bits and pieces that I picked up in the last couple of days but obviously you know we've been quiet for a month or so there's a lot of science to catch up on we should get back right into it I think.
0: We definitely need to get back right into it Um, and I love uh, the idea that we're going to be getting an insight into the interesting tidbits that you've been reading about and filing over the past four weeks. Love that. Um, and I hope there was some non-COVID-related stuff in there to um, keep you keep you entertained as well.
1: Oh, 100%.
0: Well, this week on the show, um, we have... the first episode back for 2021 after our summer series of course and if you and if you listen to our summer series thank you but this week we've got two guests we've got Dr Elodie Campras. so Elodie's from Remember the Wild and Deakin University and we also have Cassie Speakman um, who is also from Deakin University and you know they are ecologists and studying and study different areas of biodiversity and also in their spare time coordinate the Victorian Biodiversity Conference which is happening next week uh, online. So all welcome to the Biodiversity Conference. So stay tuned to hear a bit more about that, what is going to be happening at the conference and a little bit about um, not only urban Uh, biodiversity which is what uh, Elodie studies but also Australian fur seals which I do love love a bit of fur seal
1: I was I was reading about Australian fur seals down at um, Port Ferry because there used to be a huge population down there
0: oh really yeah
1: used to be well
0: oh okay there you go yeah Yeah. operative words well on with the show
1: to take a bit of a break to recuperate and regenerate and reinvigorate, but the thing about science is it just never stops. And <laughs> over the break since the end of 2020, there's been so much happening in the world and, of course, in the world of science. Now, firstly, we have to welcome the US back to the land of rational thought and evidence-based policy. After a fairly Shaky start to the year in the first week of January, if you remember back to some seems uh, like
0: a long time ago, doesn't it um
1: Jamiroquai trying to make uh, you know, <laughs> make some virtual insanity in the in the capitol <laughs> building, um, but the machinery of government has clunked into place, and a new president is replacing some other guy who used to sit around in the Oval Office, yeah. I mean, um, does
0: anyone even remember that guy?
1: Who, who even was that guy? Who um, even
0: was that guy? That civilian?
1: Some some golfing guy. <laughs> uh, but Joe Biden has been very busy after moving into the White House, putting back together the broken pieces of science-based advice to the U.S. president in the form of the President's Council on Science and Technology, or PCAST, which was basically abandoned by the side of the road. Um, under the previous administration. So this is a group who was set up by executive order to advise the US president on science and technology issues, which may affect policy decisions. And let's face it, in the 21st century, there is not much that isn't affected in some way by science and or technology. Uh, He has appointed two women as co-chairs of the council. Uh, Frances Arnold, who's a Nobel Prize-winning chemist who has used evolutionary theory to produce novel enzymes to speed up chemical processes oh. so she's yeah she's a, she's a very well uh well known and uh, very um accomplished chemist and maria zuba who's an astronomer who has been heavily involved in nasa missions which does tend to indicate that space is back on the agenda for the US government after sort of taking a bit of a back seat to well, actually to private enterprise, I think, for a while. I mean there's a there's a whole lot of um commercial space operations going on at the moment, but the government looks like they're gonna dip their toes back in those waters. Um possibly in a more sciencey way than Space Force which was the the last administration's um space Objective, I guess, would be one way to put it. Biden also announced a huge government-wide policy review, putting climate change action as a top priority in every field that the government has involvement in, from education, agriculture, industry, economics, everything across the board. So it's a huge turnaround from the previous administration's do-nothing approach to climate change, Uh, which very much went along with their do-nothing approach to just about everything else as well. Um, But that is good news on that front. Perhaps our own government can be inspired by their renewed enthusiasm for protecting the environment. And another executive order Biden has signed off is protecting scientists from political influence. So he's basically saying you can't, pressure the scientists to give you results that you want just because you're in the government which is an interesting angle and you know an important thing to do because science should show what is true and what is demonstrable in the world not just what you want to hear obviously now another story that did catch my eye the other day now claire do you do you fight to the finish because you eat your spinach like Popeye the Sailor Man.
0: <laughs> I do like my spinach.
1: So spinach is good for our health, though possibly not as good as we've been led to believe. A stray decimal point years ago had convinced us it was much higher in iron than it actually is for quite a long time. And it was always, oh, it's very high in iron, but it's... Yeah. It's, it's still good, but it's not as good it as was, we thought it was.
0: So there was a typo yeah. in, in a scientific journal... Um, that wasn't picked up on and obviously the experiment wasn't replicated uh, by anybody else for a very long time right and so it so it led to people believing that spinach was super high in iron
1: look it actually was picked up at the time but the story had gotten out already so some journalist wrote about it and then it sort of got spread through you know the 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 social media or Media of the time, I guess this is early 1900s. Right. Um, but the, so the science, say- <laughs> the science self-corrected really quickly. But the public perception didn't. It took a long time to catch up, which itself is a you know cautionary tale. Um, so we know we do know that leafy greens are good for our health, lots of fibre, lots of vitamins, but they may also be good for the planet by letting us know. Oh when things are going wrong in the environment. So plants have been used as proverbial canaries in the coal mine for quite a long time by indicating when various substances are present in the soil. We can sample the leaves and find out what the plants are absorbing out of the environment yeah. and we can, you know, react to it. This is too low tech. This is, you know, this is so <laughs> 20th century. So some scientists at MIT in the United States thought it would be easier if the plants could just send us an email when something is wrong and now <laughs> and now they can what? so by engineering carbon nanotubes inside spinach plants the scientists have developed a system where if certain substances are present in the groundwater where the plant roots grow they automatically send a signal to a transmitter that forwards an alert email to a monitoring station can okay. be used, yeah, This can be used to detect things like leaking explosives from landmines wow. or other potentially dangerous chemical contamination. Depends what they set it up to detect.
0: And how often do they get it right?
1: Every time because it's designed to pick up this specific thing. So the, the, wow. the false positives are non-existent, but even then you'd rather have a false positive that there might be a landmine mm. somewhere than get no, no indication at all, I guess. But the, the scientists who developed this system say that spinach and, and other plants similar, uh, they're perfect for this. They have extensive root systems. They're constantly drawing material, you know drawing substances out of the soil, and they've got a built-in pumping yeah. system to constantly bring those substances and the water in contact with these nanotube sensors. It's unbelievable.
0: Oh, boy. I was wondering where that was going to go. Yeah. It is. It is. It is. Um, Yeah, I'm really looking forward to... Yeah, how far they can they can push it? Will they just be sending emails or will they be sending sort of like emojis? Will they be <laughs> like like how far can we push this um this communication um, between I, plants and humans?
1: Um I can't I, I can't wait to see their, you know, animated GIF game. How good are they gonna yes. be at these memes? <laughs> can the spinach Can the spinach be the the darling of the internet? We don't know. We'll have to wait and
0: find out. We don't know. We don't know how many Twitter followers um, spinach (laughs) in the remediation soil is going to get. If someone like Donald Trump can get, you know, 70 million or however many he's got.
1: Well, let's just assume spinach isn't going to pay for followers like some other people. (laughs) Now, lastly, the last thing I wanted to do was uh, shout out to Dr. Alex Held who is an Australian space researcher. who has been honoured with the 2020 Harry Massey Award for Space Science. This is an annual award. goes out for space science, a very broad uh, area. Um, Alex Held is uh, a scientist who observes the Earth from space, uh, but also does a lot of other research in space. So he was honoured with this award, but also had a minor five-kilometre diameter planet in the asteroid belt named after him so so that that's pretty cool congratulations to to alex um it will be an honor that is long held
0: (laughs) was that whole thing just for the joke
1: yeah that was it that was just oh stew
0: it might be a new year but um when it comes to your jokes nothing's changed This week on the show, we have two scientists working to solve the world's biodiversity challenges in very different ways. Dr. Elodie Kampras from Remember the Wild and Deakin University studies the impact of urbanisation on native wildlife. And Cassie Speakman, PhD researcher from Deakin University, investigates how environmental changes affect the Australian fur seal. So together, they also happen to be coordinating the Victorian Biodiversity Conference next week, a conference to share knowledge and better understand and reverse global biodiversity decline. Uh, so it's been around for a while, the Victorian Biodiversity Conference. I think it might be in its fifth year, but this year's is the first time they're going online and there's an invite out for anyone with an interest in biodiversity to come along. So Elodie and Cassie, welcome to Lost in Science.
2: Thank you for having us. Yes, thank
0: you. Um, so yeah, the Victorian Biodiversity
3: Conference, is it in its fifth year now? Yes, That's exactly right, Claire. Yes, it's been around for a few years now. Uh, It's been held at different universities across Melbourne and this year was meant to be at Deakin University, but because you know what, we had to go online. So we're very excited to hold our very first online conference this year. Well, one of the aims of running this conference is to have a conference that is affordable for um, postgraduate students and early career researchers. So there's almost always a small fee to cover the costs of running the conference, but this year it's um, easier to join and everyone can join from the comfort of their homes.
0: Absolutely, and not just people in Victoria, I imagine. You know, people all over the world can, can join. Um, what can people expect for, from the conference?
3: So we have great sessions as usual with talks from postgraduate students and early career researchers uh, we also have exciting plenaries and panel discussions. So it's all happening in the on the eleventh and twelfth of February, and prior to that, for people that need to upskill, we also have some exciting workshops that will run online as well.
0: And can you two both tell me what you're most looking forward to about the conference?
2: I honestly haven't really thought about it. <laughs> uh, I'm most looking forward to seeing some of the plenaries. Um, We've got some really exciting talks, including one from Minda Murray, an Indigenous woman from Yorta Yorta, Uh, so it'll be really interesting to see what she has to say. So I'm most excited about seeing the range of presentations
3: and hearing about all the research from Victorian based researchers and early career practitioners.
0: I mean, graphical abstract sounds um, sounds a little bit abstract for me, but um, <laughs> it sounds like you've got quite a range of different um, uh, ecologists and science communicators in the plenaries as well, which um, sounds super exciting on a range of different subjects.
3: Yes, and it is both. the The idea of the conference is to represent not only people from academia, but also people from um, outside academia. So we have quite a few experts that are coming from industry um, whether it's uh, consultancy or local governments or not-for-profits so we're very excited to hear about um, their research and their work. So apart
0: from coordinating a whole conference uh, you both are scientists in your day jobs, um, so to speak, as well. Um, Elodie, you, um, you work on urban, urban wildlife. Um, can you tell us a bit about your research?
3: Sure. Um, so I, I work at Wildlife Victoria on top of working at Remember the Wild and Deakin University. Um, so it's an organisation that is uh, focused on wildlife rescue and rehabilitation So every day we take calls from members of the public who want to report sick, orphaned and injured animals and we organise rescue and and rehabilitation after that. So because, you know, um, the world population is increasing and urbanisation is increasing, we're impacting on wildlife more and more. And on top of that, you know, especially with COVID nowadays, we've realised that nature is something that we really need and that include interaction with um, healthy wildlife populations. So there's a push across the world to what's called bring nature back to cities, which is focused on bringing um, back nat- native species that might have declined or are locally extinct. So in the so just on that in the Melbourne region, what what would be an example? Uh, so in the Melbourne region, in urban areas one of the main threat is um, car collisions so we have a lot of wildlife that is hit by car and uh, need to be rescued or rehabilitated as a result Um, but the main threats really depend on the species that we take into account so when I'm talking about car collisions it might be more so for species like kangaroos or wombats um, but you know, for example, threatened species in the city, like flying foxes, um, are more so affected by, you know, being entangled in fruit netting in um, gardens, for example, or, um, or being entangled in rubbish, things like that.
0: So most of the big threats to urban wildlife, you know, in the cities, it's very much car collisions, but it de- really depends on the species. Um, how, how can we mitigate against these, these threats?
3: So the problem with urban environments is that it's hard for ecologists to collect data on urban wildlife. So citizen science has been used quite a lot, but um, now we're realising the potential of using data collected by wildlife emergency response services like Wildlife Victoria. So There's a massive amount of data. It's um, sometimes hundreds of hundreds of cases that are coming in every day with information on urban wildlife. So um, my collaborators at Deakin and Monash University and myself are hoping that by using this data, we can understand human wildlife conflicts better and that's the first step towards mitigating those conflicts and, and helping inform initiatives that want to bring nature back to cities.
0: Now, Cassie, you work with Australian fur seals, uh, which sounds incredible um, and um, I can imagine potentially terrifying if you become face-to-face with an angry one. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they're not all like that. Um, tell us a bit about the research, um, the type of research that you do and how do you do it?
2: Well, I was lucky with COVID that my research doesn't require much fieldwork. So I'm using a lot of pre-collected data um, that's being collected over the last 20 years. So we can finally use these big data sets and be able to have a look at what sort of longer term impacts um, might be happening from environmental change. I do get to do some fieldwork and It's not as scary as it sounds because I do the winter field work when it's mostly females and their pups and you sneak up on them and you quickly run and throw a net over them. So (laughs) it's really not (laughs) that terrifying. It's, if anything, a little bit uh, amusing to watch people running around with these giant nets and trying not to be uh, seen. So they'll poke, poke their heads up over the little grasses on the island and they look a little bit like meerkats. And then they quickly pop their heads back down, and then you keep scurrying along until you find a female that is definitely suckling a pup. So the ones that we're mostly interested in. Um, so it, it's just a lot of crawling around on your knees and carrying around a big net, um, but it, it's quite interesting. And
0: um, and what sort of samples are you are you taking, or what sort of measurements once you once you do throw the net over?
2: Uh, so we. I'm mostly using biologging devices, so things like GPS and having a look at their dive logs. So we just glue them on their backs. Thankfully, you can just cut that off, or they molt off once um, once they molt. Um, Otherwise, we get whisker samples, uh, blood samples, and we have been getting milk samples. So I have milked a seal. Wow! Um, It smells very fishy.
0: That's a good trivia question. I love that. What does seal milk smell like? It's obvious, isn't it? Fish. And, and what has the data shown to you? What, what have you sort of deduced from the research that you've been doing?
2: So I'm still working on a lot of that, but I had a paper come out last year, which was looking at the effects of some of the broad scale climate things like the El Nino Southern Oscillation, as well as some local scale things like the wind or temperature. And there were definite influences, but they're quite convoluted. And it could be due to changes in where their prey go or just the amount of prey that's there, or even potentially like the effects of them on land. So if it's too hot, they might need more time foraging or less time foraging and those sorts of indirect influences from the weather and climate. So I'm still working on finding out those nitty gritty details, but it's looking quite interesting so far.
0: Well, thank you so much, Elodie and Cassie, for coming on Lost in Science, telling us all about the Victorian Biodiversity Conference and, of course, your own research. Um, now, for people who are interested in connecting um, in and attending the, re- the conference online, um, tell us a bit
2: about where they can find out that information. Uh, so you can go across to the VicBioCon website. It's just vicbiocon.com. Otherwise, we've got a Twitter and Facebook, which are both just Fic Biocon, so nice and easy to find us anywhere. And we've got all of the information, like the programs and everything up online, as well as registration for the conference and the workshops. And we'd like to thank the sponsors that have helped us get this virtual conference running nice and smoothly. Um, so they've been really valuable to helping this uh, get off the ground and make it a great experience for everyone.
0: Well, Elodie and Cassie, thank you again um, for coming and talking to us on Lost in Science this week. Um, I can't wait for the Victorian Biodiversity Conference um, and to be able to hear from ecologists and people working at the forefront of biodiversity throughout the next week. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsightgmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR Or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get Lost in Science.